Even when I got on my first movie set, I ran it differently and men would come up to me all the time and say, it is so wonderful to be here and on this set. I have never seen people jump through hoops like they do for you. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Carlo Tolenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. Today, we bring you our interview with film and television director Vicki Jensen. Vicki started her career painting backgrounds for Hanna-Barbera cartoons and rose through the ranks of the TV and film animation business until, in the late 90s, DreamWorks hired her to co-direct a feature animation. Upon its release in 2001, the movie proved to be a juggernaut. You may have heard of it. Its title is Shrek. Yeah, that's Shrek. And not only did it win the first ever Academy Award for Best Animated Feature and gross over $267 million in 2001 alone, but it also spun off three sequels, several video games, and even a Broadway stage adaptation. Yes, you know you've made it if there's a Broadway stage adaptation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Vicky then went on to co-direct the Oscar-nominated film Shark Tale and also directed several live-action projects in the world of films, television, and advertising. She's currently hard at work on her latest project, which is a new animated film she's directing for Skydance Animation, and it's scheduled to be released in November of 2022. Vicky spoke to us from her home in Los Angeles. I asked her if she could tell us anything about the animated feature film she's currently directing. Yeah, we, we just recently announced uh, officially the movie's partnership with um, Apple. And uh, although the, the movie title has been out there for a little while, it's called Spellbound. I can say that it is a, a fantasy um, following the um, the journey of a young girl um, as she navigates an evil spell that has befallen her kingdom and threatens uh, everyone. And it is uh, a musical. It's um, with Alan Menken and Glenn Slater, a longstanding team, really, really so much fun. We were very lucky to do a music retreat, a traditional music retreat before the world changed <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and it really proved invaluable to sit with our two writers, uh, Elizabeth Martin and Lauren Hynek and my editor, my head of story, our producer, um, Alan and Glenn, the music producer, Chris, Chris Montan, um, and just sit together and talk about the movie and its meaning and where ideally songs might be placed and what they could do. It was just such a fun fun, um, eye-opening experience. And had you been able to record uh, the actors before the pandemic? Uh, no, no, okay. not at all. So uh, we, once music began, once Alan and Glenn started working on the songs and we were heading into our first demos for a screening last, well, it would have been last September, um, everything was recorded in this new world. And it was wild. I mean, it, we were shipping equipment to people and they all of Broadway was suddenly available, which was <laughs> yes. pretty cool for <laughs> us. Works you for know. you, yeah. And, but they, <laughs> they're in their closets 
with, you know, trying to peek out at us between the coats to keep the echoing down. And, and it just, the, they just sound amazing. The, the demos just sound amazing, even at this stage. Vicki, I'm curious if you can say a little more about that, because, you know, it seems like certainly your work hasn't really slowed like other artists might have had because of COVID, Broadway being a great example. But it certainly does seem like the way you've gone about business has been a little different with everything being virtual. Can you just talk a little bit about what, what are the differences you're noticing doing business well, this way? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I have to say we are incredibly lucky in our industry and in animation that although it is really one of the most collaborative forms of uh, filmmaking that there is, that we were able to continue almost without any true bumps. Everyone went home, but everyone always works on their computer anyway. So in some ways it became, it was weirdly more efficient. You know, the commute time was gone the walking between offices was gone. And in an odd way, I found myself closer to some of the artists. Like I, I'm working with artists in Madrid. Our animation team will be there, is there. Our, our lighters are there. And, and half our story team is, is in Madrid and they're nine hours ahead. And before the pandemic, uh, I would have conference meetings with them. We'd be sitting in our um, screening room. They'd be in their screening room to show their work. And I would see, you know, dozens of faces in the dark on Zoom, you know. And then after the pandemic, because everyone's at home, suddenly I'm seeing all their faces nice and close. Like, it's just much more one-on-one with the the team in Madrid. And to me, that was awesome. That was great. I felt like I could really work one-on-one with folks and there was no uh, go-between. And and I think for a lot of artists, there was some comfort in, in working in your own workspace. The company sent... Uh, everybody home with company computers, with people to help them figure out, you know, they would jump onto your computer and help you figure things out and set it up. And and then the Zoom meetings began. In a large way, it really didn't slow us down. And I think that that was true for, for some friends of mine on The Simpsons, other people that, uh, a real close friend of mine who who does key animation on shows like Supergirl. And None of that stopped because we're not dependent on being face-to-face. Now, some things are certainly better face-to-face, like brainstorming, you know, being able to sit in the same room, take the movie apart, put it back together again, throwing Post-its up on the board, uh, or taking an idea and everyone sketching out gags. That, that stuff is so important one-on-one. But the biggest one I would have to say is screenings. Screenings in this world... Um, the experience suffers. I mean, the reason we go to the movies is to share an experience, to share laughter, to hear other people sniffling at the emotional parts, you know, Mm -hmm. and that doesn't happen this way. We're all screening, you know, super secretly and very, very securely, but all alone. Oh, so the recent screening that you had, each person was at their own monitor watching the film at the same time. Yeah, virtually the same time. Interesting. Oh, interesting. And that is hard because, you know, the most exciting experience that you can have in your life in animation is is sitting with an audience for the first time and hearing them uh, react and participate in the movie. And we don't get that. So I would love one day to find some way we can continue to do that, whether it's an outdoor venue or or Mm -hmm. something where at least we can be together on certain occasions. And I think that's going to happen when we get move forward. We'll have a hybrid of a studio at home kind of arrangement. We've been already talking about it at Skydance. 
So that's what I was wondering, Vicky, is, is are there other aspects of what you've learned about continuing to work through COVID that you think will will remain on once life returns to whatever normal is? I do. I think that the flexibility of having work days at home and some studio days is really evident that there's such an advantage to it. You know, I think people are very, very productive if they're not taking all that time to commute. If they're not dependent on being in a studio, it actually can open up our talent pool. There were it was hard to get some people to to come across, you know, the Santa Monica Mountains to come work with us uh, on Wilshire, even, and let alone when the studio moves uh, out towards Culver City. You know, so many of the animation studios had popped up in Glendale that people bought their homes there, their kids go to school there. Um, no one has the expectation that when they're hired at a studio that that is their job for life. It's just not the 50s and 60s anymore. So people need to know that they can live somewhere and and be able to move from studio to studio as the projects require. Um, not all studios have a commitment to keep people on in between. They used to. We called it Gap, you know, at DreamWorks. But it's just sort of not as feasible, I'm sure, as it once was. So if you work on one movie for three years and uh, and hope to work on another project at that studio, but you can't be guaranteed that. And then you move to another studio out of necessity, or, or perhaps you have an opportunity for uh, moving up uh, to a different position. It's super handy if they happen to be near each other. <laughs> so, um, you know, the podcast is called Art Restart, and we often will explore changes that artists would like to see happen in their industry or in the systems that surround their industry. And Hollywood has certainly had its share of um, turbulence on the industry, the hashtag me too movement, you know, nationally, we've got BIPOC conversations happening. I'm, I'm curious from your experience as a filmmaker and an artist and a, a woman, are there things about the systems that surround your work that you'd like to see change? Well, actually the, the I'm, I'm very actively seeing, or I should say, I'm seeing them very actively change already. Mm. Um, I, I what are you feel seeing? like, well, I'm seeing that, for instance, at Skydance, even before Me Too, um, it was a, a huge, well, probably in, in concert with Me Too, a huge awareness and desire to open up the, the, the studio, open up the dialogue. We had very free and vocal um, town hall meetings at our studio during that whole period. You know, John Lasseter joined us and, um, you know, he he was part of a, a of this focus. And, you know, I, I like to believe that mankind can move forward, that, that people can move forward and evolve. And if we can't expect one person to evolve, I don't know how we expect a society to evolve. So it took time and a lot of effort on the studio's part to make um, us feel comfortable, you know, uh, having John join us. Uh, he made huge, huge efforts to to uh, uh, do the same thing. And I feel like in a, a lot of ways, our studio is at the forefront of inclusion, of discussion, of um, social involvement. It really adjusted even the type of stories that, that the studio decided to, to tell based on how we were reacting to, to the world. And I think with my movie in particular, uh, I, I can't really give too much away, but it has a very strong social and personal um, element to it. It's dealing with a topic that isn't usually dealt with, and I don't think ever has been, it, certainly in, in a huge animated movie. 
because for me, meaning is what, you know, I, I want to lead with. I, I come from a world of, in animation where, where stories would evolve out of, say, an arena. You know, like, what about a story about shadows or sports teams that are actually made up of the mascots that the sports team has? And like, okay, that's, that's a big concept, you know, and everyone would say, just let the story, let the movie tell you what it wants to be about. It feels very ass backwards. No. <laughs> um, I when I came to Skydance, it's because they they pitched a couple of movies at me, and the one I gravitated to led with meaning. It had a purpose. It had a story to tell. So it was my job to figure out how to tell that story. And we pulled out all the details that had nothing to do with this core emotional issue or this this the, the key story that 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 had something to say. So when John came in, he further aided that process of weeding out everything in that complicated story and get it down to what are we trying to say? What is most important here? What will the audience feel? And our story room was wide and inclusive. Everyone could could speak. There wasn't any of that sort of uh, bro atmosphere that I heard so much about that happened, you know, at, at Pixar, there, there wasn't the, you know, the, it wasn't a brain trust anymore. It was a story trust and it was quite a big group. And then, uh, we started in, uh, inviting speakers in to talk to us about, uh, unconscious bias and about representation and, and who could tell whose stories, which is a, a nuanced discussion that happened, uh, after, um, Black Lives Matter. It wasn't so much just representation, but that that representation is authentic and told by people that understand it. And that's different. You know, back in the day, you'd throw, you know, you could see a movie where or a TV series where a Hispanic character was there, a black character was there. But the storytellers were all white and the writers were all white. And those characters were what those white voices interpreted those voices of color would be. And you just don't do that anymore. And I feel like um, I've never been in a studio where that conversation was so candid and so important and so present. Then it continues. I mean, even just a couple days ago, we had two different um, really awesome panels at Skydance on on these kind of subjects of, of talking to some of the elite uh, black writers in Hollywood for their perspective on things like representation. And it was amazing. Resounding was like uh, whitewash uh, representation or no representation. And they're like, no representation. That's the choice. You know, it's got to be authentic. And I totally respect that. You know, it's just, it's just been amazing. It's been like going to to you know, college or something all over again. It's just the, the education doesn't doesn't stop. Um, I was raised by very socially aware parents, good upstanding communists. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, the ideals of communism, which was you know we're we're here for each other and we have to build this world together, and and that's what they they believed. And if you are going into the arts, it's because you want to continue the great conversation of art and what it does for our, our kind, for humankind and for the world, not just to sell, you know, toys. And I feel oddly, you know, even though this studio is as profitable as it is, it has huge movies behind it. That's 
that's the approach here for Skydance Animation. Have you yourself, and given these these discussions that the um, the studios had the last few years, have you found your have you learned something you didn't know before? Are you finding that you're working slightly differently as a result? Yes, I think to all of that, you know, I thought I was a, a fairly um, you know, educated and socially aware and responsible person. I lived through my own experiences of um, misogyny in our industry. Um, I lived through feelings of denial about it. Like when I came into the studio, into this industry, I accepted things the way they were. You know, I was one of a couple of women, you know, at the time and surrounded by men who just off color humor and, you know, harassment. And I just sort of like, well, I guess that's the way the world is. I'm just, you know, I just got to get used to it and play with the big boys. That's how it is in the big boy pool. And, and just never gave it a thought until, you know, it just kept adding up and adding up. And, you know, I wasn't defeated by it. Uh, I worked hard. I'm a talented person. I'm a very opinionated person. I'm loud. Um, uh, I've got brothers. I'm not easily knocked on on my off my feet. So I just thought that's the world, and and I just have to you know be a, a an aggressive monkey and do the same thing. You know, not not treat other people that way, but but to play on that playing field, I just needed to be tough. And it took me a long time to recognize, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. And even when I got on my first movie set, I ran it differently. And and men would come up to me all the time and say, it is so wonderful to be here and on this set. I have never seen people jump through hoops like they do for you, you know, because I'm not leading with fear. I'm leading with inclusion and, and kindness and talking about what the movie's about. And then even your, your, your props, people come up and go, oh, look, I found this little ashtray. And I think it talks about the family because see, it's a circle. And you were talking about the family being, everybody gets involved. They all feel excited when you value what they do. Earlier, you described yourself as, as being loud, being unafraid to make yourself heard. So what advice would you have for an artist who did not have that same quality as you, but had the same talent? Um, well, there's great power in silence too. And if you find yourself in the room and in the position that, you know, let's say, you know, a, a young female creator has sold a show to Hulu or Netflix or something, that's the strength to start with. You don't have to be swayed by the louder voices in the room. Hear them, take it all in, consider it, and then speak. And your words will be louder than anything. Um, There are plenty of people, male and female, I know, that speak just to fill up the room, just to fill the space, to prove that they uh, have a reason to be there. And it's hollow, and you can feel it. I know one filmmaker who's very soft-spoken, and she's amazing, Jennifer U. Nelson. She's she is very zen, very quiet, very careful with when she chooses to speak. And it's very powerful. Is there any advice you wish you had received when you were starting off, not only getting into this field, but maybe getting into uh, leadership roles? I wish somebody said, you should direct when I was like 17. <laughs> it took me until I was in my 30s to realize I, I really wanted to direct. It's just 
that just suited me so well. I, I've always had such um, varied uh, interests from ballet, flamenco, cello, singing, um, you know, fencing, all these things I would <laughs> do. And, and then when I stumbled onto this, the fact that directing allows you to become kind of an expert at anything without actually being the one up there doing it, uh, it was fantastic. I'm involved with the composers, with the music, with the writers, um, you know, letting everyone do what they do best, but guiding like a conductor in orchestra. And that just suited my temperament rather than being told, you should just um, focus on one thing and you'll be really great at that. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So it kind of would have been cool if someone said, well, maybe you should try directing. You know, Rob, I love, there's something really crucial that she points out, that creating a more equitable and inclusive workplace like she did on her film sets is great, not only for women and people of color, right? It's right. all workers get to benefit from the atmosphere where everyone is equally valued. Well, surprise, surprise. Right. <laughs> people like to be seen. They like to be valued. They like to be appreciated. Um, they like to not be beaten over the head. In the leadership world, we might say it's a no-brainer, but it's really not for people. You know, as folks get up in the world and get into higher levels, they don't always come with the right mentoring or training or life experience to say this is a better way to get the best out of your people, um, mm. and this may be less useful. And then you've got some contexts and some environments that sort of promote unhealthy behaviors, you know, and unhealthy leadership styles. And, and that's the culture that people are infused into. And then they assume that's just the way it is. And I love that even though she was one of two women at the start of her career and had, I can't imagine the obstacles she faced, she managed to uh, maintain her uh, equanimity through all of that mm. uh, because the art was, was, was paramount to the telling of good stories. So I have a question for you is outside of war, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, why, why does this militaristic hierarchical style of leadership, like the one you hear uh, takes place in, in chef's kitchens, for instance, right. why does it uh, persist? What, what does the research show about what types of workplace atmospheres and leadership styles actually impact productivity? Well, there's kind of two things in there that I hear you say, Pierre Carlo. One is the the culture itself, and then productivity is the second piece. So, right. uh, uh, and they're not necessarily exclusive or um, a dichotomy to each other. The the, the first I would say is um, is culture is not easily changed, and so as a certain environment is um, developed, and then people get recognized and rewarded for it it becomes harder and harder to change the culture. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a young chef comes up and is yelled at through his career by these uh, powerful chefs and realizes that's the way to get ahead. Vicky talked about it. Maybe I just need to be a monkey and do this song and dance mm -hmm. um, to be successful in film. And then she realized it doesn't have to be this way. And we're starting to see that change. You know, we a few years ago, we interviewed um, Vivian Howard, the, the chef of, uh, you know, the TV show Chef's Life and the Chef in the Farm right. restaurant and just clearly leads in a different way than yelling at her team and, mm -hmm. and using command and control. And so there's choice that can be had and still it can take time to adjust those cultures. Uh, but what gets recognized and rewarded gets continued. So until people start to do right. it differently, there's not necessarily seen the need to do it. Um, command and control type leadership to this day can be 
appropriate in to me in situationally specific instances. You know, if if our house is on fire, it's not the time for you and I to sit around and have a self-directed work meeting and say, what do you think we should do here? You know, someone needs to yell fire and let's get the hell out. And and we Uh do. And so someone's charging that, you know, but that's in a moment, you know, and it's not Uh long term. And even I've done a lot of consulting work over the years, um, including with the DOD and some military branches. And the discussion that it's been developing is more about the statement we need. Uh, we still need command, but we need less control. And what they meant is, you know, there's still the the hierarchy of who you report to and getting work done, trickling down through a large organization. But we need leaders at all levels, and we need to not uh, beat people over the head with the control aspect of it. And so there's been a huge movement in training of of how to develop leaders uh, in the military, for example, and they're trying to change a, a huge culture. And ultimately, and there's research after research after research study on this that and you and I were just discussing it, people get fatigued by the overuse of that kind of power. Um, Research shows that people don't quit jobs, they quit bosses. Nine times out of 10, if someone's quitting a job, yeah, they're quitting their relationship to their their boss or bosses that they report to. Wow. Um, Yeah, and so, but it can go the other way. I've seen this many times where people overly rely on the relationship side, you know, and they want to be like the leader who wants to be everyone's buddy. And that's what I call the nicest, least helpful person you ever worked for. The leadership that I see that's most successful is a balance between people who can build relationships, so build trust, respect, and rapport. And then on the flip side of the same coin, they can clarify expectations and hold people accountable to those expectations. And the reason that both of those are important is so that when it's time to have a critical conversation or move things forward or give someone feedback, if there's at least some level of mutual respect and trust, it's much easier to have that conversation. Right. And if I just rely on the trust building and the friendliness and the relationship, we're not going to go anywhere because there's no one steering the ship to say, this is where we're going. And here's what's expected of you in your role. And here's what I need from right. you. The, the leaders that I see that are most successful in transcending culture are the ones that are doing both of those things well. Well, you know, I just hope that thanks to directors like Vicky, that this toxic Hollywood biz, like boys culture, that's been right. the norm for so long, will, will seem like a strange, like relic to the next generation of let's filmmakers. Hope. Like, can you believe this used to happen? You know? <laughs> yes. If you'd like to read a longer version of our interview with Vicky, please head to uncsa.edu slash art restart. And if you enjoy the interview, please leave us a rating. Rob and I want to make sure we speak with artistic change makers from all corners of the country. So if you'd like to let us know of a remarkable artist in your community, please do so. You can find me on Twitter at PC Talenti, and you can also leave us a message on Facebook at Creative Catalyst. Special thanks to Allison Williams. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thanks for listening.